We are going to continue this Acts series. We're in Acts chapter 4. Big thank you to Johnny for filling in for me and preaching through Acts 3 and 4. He left you off right at the end of Acts chapter 4. So that's going to be where we're picking it up. You can turn there now. Acts 4. And starting in verse 32. Tonight's title of the message is community, generosity, and a promise to God. So there's actually going to be sort of three parts of this sermon, and that's the title of, of each portion that we're going to tackle. That's, a, that's the title of the, tonight's message, but it's also the, the three uh, sort of parts of this message. So we're going to start with community, which is, again, where Johnny left you off with last time. Verse 32 says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I love the language of unity here. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they were distributed to each as anyone had need. Right? So this is community. And, and people are, are naturally drawn to and they long for community. I have witnessed and experienced certain sort of, um, I would say, ungodly community, but all people, they're, they long for community, they look for community, and sometimes the community that is created, as I said, is, is a little ungodly. I, I've been to a place where it's, you know, dark and dingy and, and people are all drinking together and they're they're also like come together with one purpose and, and one accord, but it's not a holy one. And, and when you go into those situations, you feel like, okay, there's something about community here, but there's something lacking. And that is the godliness that is supposed to be in community. So I don't want to just talk about community, but godly community. And, and godly community is, is centered in certain things. I have seven here. I'm not saying this is a complete list, but these are the seven that we see in Acts that the godly community is based on. If you remember, at the end of chapter two, it actually sounds a lot like what we just read. It says, now all who believed were together, right? Sounds very similar to what we read in the end of chapter four here. They had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, right? There's that unity again in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So that passage is very similar to this passage in chapter four. And when you can, when you have those two things, those two passages together, that's where I get this list of seven things of how godly 
community is centered. So it's centered on Jesus. Always Jesus is always the first and most important thing to, to center anything on, right? Godly community is centered around Jesus. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay, so Jesus is the center of godly community. Jesus, love, truth, encouragement, generosity, unity, and simplicity. These are the seven things that I have. So Jesus, as opposed to anything except Jesus, anything but Jesus, right? If it's centered on anything else, then it's false. It's not a godly community. It's not a community that is glorifying to God. Love, as opposed to bitterness or hatred or or just, you know, discord, right? Truth, as opposed to lies. Encouragement, as opposed to backbiting or gossip. Generosity, as opposed to greed or tight-fistedness. And, and there are <laughs> communities based on all these things that I'm saying as opposed to, right? Unity as opposed to separating or split vision, right? Sometimes there's a community centered around a group of people who are hating another group of people, right? Oh, well, they're wrong. And it's not based on unity. It's based on, I don't like that person. So let's form this sort of unholy alliance against this other group of people, or sometimes it's just one person. Uh, and seven is simplicity as opposed to disagreeing or just being complicated, right? Sometimes a community is centered around that. In 2 Timothy, we can keep our finger here in Acts chapter 4, but let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 22, it says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we correct those who are in community with us, right? And Paul says elsewhere, uh, it's First Corinthians 4, I, I believe, that we don't correct outside of Christ, right? We don't go around non-Christians and saying, you need to act like us, you know, and we judge them exactly how we would maybe judge a brother. But he says we do judge, we do correct within our community. There's a certain standard that we hold each other to. And when somebody goes outside that standard, we are sometimes called to correct that person. And here's one place where we are called to do that. But the Bible says to speak the truth in love. It says to correct with Grace. Here it says, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Right? So we don't just go around pointing the finger, being judgmental, saying we're better than you, but we, we, we speak the truth in love, we speak the truth with grace, and we speak in humility. We, we first look at ourselves, right? Jesus says, take the plank out of your eye before you take the speck out of your brothers, right? So we, we speak knowing that we're not perfect. 
um, but we do still correct each other. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So this is saying only speak what is necessary for edification. That, that grace might be imparted. So even when we correct, even when we confront, it needs to have a tone and a goal of edification, right? We don't tear people down. We try and build them up. So even when we're saying, hey, man, you're, you're off track here. You're doing the wrong thing. Like, I love you. That's how we need to approach this thing. And I'm telling you that you're off track so that you can get back on the right track. We are encouraging, even in our warning, even when we correct, even when we confront. Let's go now back to Acts and pick it up in verse 36 as we move into the generosity and giving portion of the sermon. It says, And Joses, who is also named Barnabas, we're going to learn more about him as we move through Acts, uh, he was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. This guy is going to help community. We, we love this guy. We love encouragement. We love sons of encouragement. That's Barnabas. And this guy is going to encourage a godly community. He is a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is submission. This is giving. This is generous. All right. This guy's selling what he has and bringing it to the church so that it, it can be dispersed among the entire community. Now, there's three types of people <laughs> that will sort of react in three separate ways when generosity or giving is taught. When, when a preacher stands up and says, all right, we're going to talk about giving. Here's the three types of people that sort of react. One, there's those who already tithe and they tend to think that everybody else also tithes. These are people that probably grew up in the church, grew up with parents who gave, and they naturally give, and they just think that everybody else naturally gives as well, okay? Second type of person is uh, those who give, but they don't give 10%. These people tend to feel guilty when giving is preached about, and they're like, ah, yeah, I know, I need to give more. And honestly, the first two types, even the people who are tithing, giving that 10%, sometimes even they'll be like, yeah, I know, like I, could, I can probably give more. They're also going to sort of feel guilty. But when you're not giving that 10%, you really feel that heavy, like, ah, I know, I need to give more. Number three, the, the third type of person, those who don't give at all, uh, or, or maybe they've they've given once or twice and and but they tend to just not give. And this, the way that that person sort of reacts when giving is preached about is they wish they didn't show up and, and they wish they didn't have to hear about this. Like, man, why didn't I just stay in bed and, and just eat bonbons and watch Netflix? And just, why did I come tonight? Like I could have avoided this thing. And that's the sort of heart behind the people who don't give, right? And, and typically their complaint is, well, I just don't want to hear a preacher telling me to give him my money. Like, I don't want to give some preacher my money. And what I want to say tonight is that I don't get paid for this. <laughs> I do this because I love you guys and I was given an opportunity and I love preaching 
the word of God, and it, it's just it's just my heart. So I don't get paid for this. So don't give me your money. I don't want your money. I'm preaching giving because it's in the Bible. Give to a church. Give to a ministry. Give to someone in need. And I have this article here that I read kind of a, a while ago, and it just sort of stuck with me. And I wanted to share some of the stats. I'm not going to read the whole article, but if you're interested in it, I can send it to you. And before I get into this, you'll say, well, how do people, how does the church know this? Like, where do they get these stats? Well, most churches have a pretty good idea of how many people in their congregation are giving and who is giving because typically it's written on a check. And if it is cash, most churches have those little envelopes. You fill in your name and most people do fill in their name because when you do, you get a tax write-off and that's that's a good thing. Uh, or for instance, Andy and I, we give digitally through the app uh, for, through our bank. And so our church gets a check with our name on it at the end of the year. We get this tax write-off thing and we we write it off. That's, that's an amazing, cool little extra thing that, that you get back. So when you say like, oh, how, do, how does the church know this? Typically, churches have a pretty good idea of who is giving. Now, I, this isn't in my notes, but pastors typically don't know. They're sort of separated typically from this kind of information because they want to serve every person equally and they don't want to think, well, that person ties a lot, so I need to spend more time with them. That's typically not how it is done. A pastor will separate himself from this kind of information, but the bookkeepers, administration, they have a pretty good idea of the percentage of people who are giving and the, the, the people who are giving as well. So some of the stats from this article, the article is called, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? How Giving 10% Could Change the World. And, and uh, some of the stats here, it says that tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. 10 to 25%. Not a lot. Now, in our sort of church where it's a, a much smaller community, that, that number will probably go up. But bigger churches and even a lot of small churches, 10 to 25%. That is a, not a big number of tithers. So if you're in that first group, you give, you think everybody else does, here's a little wake-up call. Not, not that you need to judge people, but realize, oh, this isn't a normal thing, and it, it is a godly thing. Only about 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Christians are only giving 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression, they gave at a 3.3% rate. So the hardest time in our country's history, people are actually giving more than they're giving now when we're kind of in, in, in a time of an upswing, right? So we're not really pulling our weight two to two and a half percent. And the rest of this information I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna scroll down through this article a little bit. This is basically, again, the, the name of this article is what would happen if everybody did tithe. And this is only 10%. If everybody just, every Christian just gave 10%, what would happen? And these numbers, it, I'm not going to say they're accurate. I don't know where they pulled these numbers from. It's probably what normally this type of number is coming from is 
they look at how much progress they've done in the past 10 years and if we continued or if we had more money then it could look like this so this is a little outlandish this is high thinking it's probably not super accurate but it's something cool to think about like wow like what if we could do that if everybody did give so some fun numbers to just look at and and realize what we could do if everybody tithed it says numbers like that invoke a lot of guilt which isn't really the point the larger point is what would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of let's say 10 percent there's the tithe that we're talking about right there would be an additional 165 billion for churches to use and distribute uh, the global impact would be phenomenal. Here's just a few things the church could do with that kind of money. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and the deaths from preventable diseases in five years. Within five years, this could be taken care of. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world uh, where one billion people live on less than a dollar per day. Uh, that again, maybe maybe we couldn't do all these things, but it's cool to think about. Like, what if everybody gave? What could we at least work towards? Uh, one billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. Uh, uh, 100 to 110 billion would still be left over for additional ministry expansion. These are amazing numbers. Again, probably not super accurate, but cool to think about. And and it's just, again one of those what if things. If everybody just gave a minimum of 10 percent, and this article goes on to say that those who are giving. 10%, they typically will go on to, to give more than 10%. Because again, that first type of person, when you hear a preacher teach on this, they're like, ah, yeah, I could, I could probably give more. So they do. And so if you're given 10%, you probably will tend to give a little bit more than that. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3 real quick. 1 John chapter 3 verse 17 says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a, that's a, big, that's a big verse. If you have money to help someone, you see someone in need and you do not help them, do you actually love that person? And how does the love of God even, how can you say you're a Christian is what John is saying here. It's a, it's a harsh verse, but it's, it's true. Let's go to second Corinthians now. Second Corinthians chapter nine. You guys have probably heard this one taught on one of those times where the preacher gets up and talks about giving some people try and sneak out the back door. <laughs> second Corinthians nine verse Six, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Beautiful verse. And by the way, some of the context here is very much what we are talking about tonight and what we're about to read more 
in Acts. First five verses here, Paul is saying, he's writing to the Corinthians, hey, you said you're going to give to the church in, in Macedonia. Cool, great, love you. That's, that's an amazing thing. But I kind of feel like I should remind you that of the number you said you're going to give and, and that you should be ready. They're on their way, and I want you guys to be ready with that gift you said you were going to give so that you're not sort of embarrassed, like, oh, uh, whoops, you came all this way, and, well, we don't have it. So Paul is saying, hey, you said you're going to give. That's awesome. But be ready to give and give the amount you said you were going to give. That's sort of what he's hitting them with right now. You already said you're going to give. They're on their way. And I felt like I should remind you to fulfill the promise that you already gave. And so he's saying, maybe give more. You know, because when you give bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully, right? And don't undercut what you said. Don't, uh, oh, well, I know we've said we we're going to give that, but we, we only have this much. No, give what you said you were going to give, if not a little bit more. Verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 9. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you may know that the word cheerful here, it means hilarious. And this doesn't mean that the guy's just a funny dude. It means that he is hilariously giving. Like, he is super jazzed to give, and also he is uh, giving almost excessively. He's just, like, jazzed to give above and beyond. That is what Paul is talking about, and it says that God loves a cheerful, a hilarious giver. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. And this is sometimes a little oversold where it's like, if you give, God will give the exact amount back to you. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what scripture says. But it does say you're going to reap bountifully, right? And, and it says that God is able to replenish what you give. And I have experienced this. I have come into some money. I'm like, oh, you know what? I feel like I should give here. I've given it and literally like the same amount will come that I wasn't expecting again. Like that happens to givers a lot. I'm not saying it always happens, but it's able, God is able to do that thing and he will do it often. I love also that you don't have to give. He says not grudgingly, or out of necessity. You don't have to give. But God is asking you to. <laughs> Your creator is, is asking you a favor of you. Can, you. can you fulfill that? God's asking you to give. Now, we're not under the law. We don't have to give. And the funny thing about that is actually, I heard one pastor say that in the law, yes, there was the tithe, but when you add up all of the extra feast days and the sacrifices that they were supposed to give of their grain and their crop and, and their their animals. When you add all that up and in one year it was not 10%, it was actually closer to 25%. When you're under the law, when you had to give, when that was the way the religious ritual that you had to do to fulfill God's calling on your life, it was actually closer to 25%. So you might say, man, oh, 10% so much. Yeah, well, when you had to, it was a lot more. And God's just asking for you to give. And it's not even saying 10% here. He says, 
each one give as he purposes in his heart. What have you already decided? What 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 feels like you, what you should give, and not say, oh well, this makes sense uh, according to my numbers. No, what is God calling you to give? Because sometimes it's going to be a little more. Like I, God, that's a number that I don't know if I'm ready to. That seems like a lot. But if God's calling you to give that amount, don't not give it. And this sort of moves us into the final portion of our sermon tonight, the promise to God. And as we go back to Acts, we finished chapter four, but we're moving into chapter five. And there's a little bit of a juxtaposition here between the simplicity of heart in Barnabas and, and now we're going to see a lying heart. Somebody who said they're going to give an amount and then they don't. Okay. And, and there's a juxtaposition between generosity, right? Barnabas is selling everything he has and laying it at the feet of the apostles with trust and love that the apostles will disperse it to the community in a godly manner. Okay. That's, that's Barnabas's heart. And the juxtaposition is against greed where this man, Ananias, and his wife, they're like, hey, we're going to give this, we're going to sell this, and we're going to give everything to the community. And then they don't. Like, oh, wow, this is maybe more than we thought it would be. We're going to hold back a little bit, and we're going to give this amount. Let's read it. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a certain man named, and see that, but, that's where I see the juxtaposition. It says, here's what Barnabas did, but a certain man named Ananias. Now, this is a different Ananias. We're going to read about another Ananias later in Acts. Different dude, totally different heart. This Ananias uh, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. This is a, a word of knowledge that Peter, how does he know this thing? You know, you might say, oh, maybe somebody told him. We don't know, but we see word of knowledge actively playing out in Peter's life. And I for sure think that the Holy Spirit said, hey, Ananias did not give everything the way he said. Right. And the takeaway here is that a promise to God. And this is a scriptural theme throughout the entire Bible. When you make a promise to God, you better be sure to keep that promise. A promise to God is a huge deal. And sometimes we make a promise to God sort of in a pinch when we want God to do something for us. We're like, oh shoot, like I, I really got to pass this test. God, if you just help me pass this test, then I, I promise to like give up Snickers for however long. Or God, if you get me out of this pinch, I promise to like go into full-time ministry. And then you pass the test or you get through the hard thing and you're like, oh cool, thanks God. And then you don't fulfill that promise you gave to God. We've all done this. And it's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing to break a promise to God. Or sometimes we promise an amount 
or we promise that we're going to support a missionary or a, a ministry or a church. We're like, yeah, I want to help you out. And then you don't follow up. Or sometimes it's a specific amount. If we don't fulfill that promise, we're not stealing from or lying to that person or that ministry. We have stolen and lied to God. That is huge. Going on in verse 5, Then Ananias, hearing these words, Peter confronts him on it. Just as we read in Timothy, we're supposed to confront each other. And, and Peter does it, but it's harsh, but it's with love. Why did you do this thing, Ananias? Why? You could have not done it. Like, it was in your own control. Before you sold it, it was yours. Then you sold it. The money was in your possession. You didn't have to do this thing. He confronts him. And Ananias hears the words. And after he hears them, continuing in verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. He just falls at Peter's feet and dies. And, man, I don't think that Peter was cursing him and saying, Ananias, you're dead. Like, he just confronts him on it. But the Holy Spirit grabs Ananias' heart and stops it right then and there because this is a big deal. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Like, here's the amount you gave us. Is, is this how much it sold for? And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is a heavy passage, a heavy passage. And the moral of the story is don't steal from God. Do not lie to God. Have you told God you're going to be better about tithing? You're going to start giving? Have you promised God that you're going to do anything specific? Oh, I, I promise to go on this mission trip or whatever it is, whatever that thing is. Have you promised God I'm going to be better at this or I'm going to do this specific thing? Stop lying. Stop procrastinating. Repent and do what you said you would do whether it be to a person, to a ministry, or to God himself, if you've said you're going to do something, do it. And you might say, man, like, am I going to get st struck dead? Like, holy cow, like, this is intense. It is intense. And you might not drop dead, but you will have to see your creator at one point, and he will deal with your lies, with your procrastinating, and with your just blatant, not fulfilling the promise you gave him. So repent of that thing 
and do better. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Now, we hear a lot and we read a lot about the love of God. And it's not a ton of verses that talk about the hatred of God. But here's one of them. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. This passage is, if you think about it, almost the opposite of the list of things that we talked about earlier about a godly community. This list is how to ruin godly community. God hates these things. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Ananias did not have to, the plan that he, he had to hold back the money, it's a wicked thing. God hates it. Feet that are swift in running to evil. Man, God hates when he, he pulls us out of the muck, right? He, he grabs us by the scruff of the neck or the, the collar, he pulls us out of the mud and he's like, all right, I just pulled you out of that filth. Don't go back to it. And, and our feet are just kicking. We're all, okay, 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 okay. We're ready to run. He drops us. We hit the ground. We run right back to that pile of mud that he just pulled us out of. It's a wicked thing and God hates it, man. A false witness who speaks lies. That's Ananias and his wife. And one who sows discord. Ananias was breaking community. And this is a huge deal to break community is to break unity. Now, as we read this, you might see things in your own life. Like, oh man, that thing I'm doing, like God hates it. The proud look, the lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent. Maybe you're not thinking of killing anybody, but Jesus said that if you have hatred in your heart, you have murdered, right? A heart that devises wicked plans. Have you, have you kind of twisted something? Have you planned something that'll hurt somebody else you keep running back to that sin that God is trying to save you from you keep clicking on the stupid link that you shouldn't be clicking on you keep hanging out with those friends that all they want to do is get high you keep going back to the evil that God is trying to pull you out of is that where you're at a false witness are you gossiping about people are you lying about people or about ministries or about anything are you sowing discord? Are you only ever wanting to argue with Christians about the things that, oh, look, I found this and you're wrong and let me prove it to you. Are you sowing discord? And that's what, by the way, gossip will sow discord as well. This is a list of how to break godly community. Now, let me say this. If you are abiding in Christ, you are pleasing to God. Even if some of the things that I just said hit your heart, they tug on you, that's not saying God hates you. If you are a Christian, you have full faith in the, the good news 
of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he died as a sacrifice for your sins on that cross, that he was buried, but rose again, right? Conquering sin, death, and and putting away the wrath of God for any who believe on him. If, If you believe that, if you know that, then you're pleasing to God. Even if you're still struggling with these things, that's what we call sanctification. God is bringing you closer to the person he wants you to be. Even if you recognize things that God does hate in your life, don't get depressed about that thing. Deal with it, but know that God doesn't see you as wicked. He does not hate you. He loves you if you have faith, if you are abiding in Christ. Because what will happen often is the wrong people feel too bad. But what I want you to hear is, yes, work on things. But more so, if you are not abiding in Christ, man, you better clean up because you are against God. And you might not drop dead, but you'll be face to face with God and he will deal violently with you if you deal violently with his people. The point is, Do not be someone who sows discord. That is what Ananias was doing. That is what Sapphira was doing. So you might say, man, why did God just kill him? Why did Peter? And, you know, I don't think that Peter cursed Ananias to die, but he knew that, well, I I still have to confront Sapphira. I have to. And he knew she was going to die. He says, look, people who just carried your dead husband out, they're going to carry you out, too. Why did they die? Or maybe you might ask, why doesn't God strike people dead now when they lie to him, when they steal from him? God is here in Acts. He's setting up the beginning of the Christian church. And it needs to be pure because this is the foundation of Christianity. And this foundation needs to be completely pure. Here we see that God is preserving his truth. There is no room for it to be torn apart so early. So when somebody comes in and they're going to lie to God, they're going to twist people, they're going to break that unity that needs to be pure in the beginning, God says, nope, no room for it. Ananias, you're out. Sapphira, you're done. We can't speak to if they were saved or not. All we can speak to is God was keeping his community pure so that Christianity could survive. This is a big, big deal. As we read on in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord. Okay? There's that unity. This is why it's so important. This is why God did what he did. This is why Peter did what he did. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because they needed to be of one Accord, And they were. In verse 12, and it says, In Solomon's porch. Now, this is a little side note. I kind of nerded out for a little while. We don't have to go completely into it. But Solomon's porch is is significant because it's where Jesus taught very often. It was where many people came if they were sick, if they were poor. And they sort of hung out and they asked people for help. Or they asked people for money or alms, as the Bible calls them. And it was in the the court of Gentiles. Uh, This court was for all nations, for all people. 
everyone was welcome here. Men, women, Jew, Gentile, healthy, sick, rich, poor, everyone was welcome here. And it's where the community here is focusing their time where everybody could gather. It's where Jesus focused his ministry many times. And we see Jesus preach all throughout the temple, but Solomon's porch is where he is often because everyone's welcome there and that's where he is preaching. And that's where this community is teaching and preaching and learning people to be closer to God. Verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them. Hmm. But the people esteemed them highly. This is talking about that tight-knit community where everybody lived together. They ate together all the time. They're selling their possessions and they're dispersing it between this tight-knit community. It says that people are coming, but they're not joining the tight-knit community. Verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, Christians are coming, people are being saved, and the, 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 the community of Christians is growing, but the tight-knit community, nobody else joined it. Okay, that was the foundation. That was sort of the cornerstone, right? Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So Peter is there. He is the rock. He is, he is, the, he is sort of that foundation of that tight-knit community. Now, why didn't people, even though they came to know the Lord, why didn't they join this tight-knit community? Two things. Consequences and confrontation, it scares people. I, I have, in my life, had to confront a friend, and that friend eventually came back and and everything is is good but through that i lost another friend and I, I feel very strongly that it's because he was a little freaked out like oh we're, that's how we're gonna do life like i'm you're gonna call me out on my stuff i don't like that okay people it scares them to be confronted or to be held accountable and as christians we are held to a higher calling. And when we misstep, the Bible says those who are spiritual, right, bear each other's burdens and, and confront those issues and pull them back from, as we read in Timothy, the snares of the devil. Confront them. Confront their wickedness. And I'm not talking about like one tiny little thing. I'm talking about, you know, something that needs to be confronted. We shouldn't be pointing our fingers at people all the time. You know, we need to let things roll off our back. Proverbs says that it's it's a blessed thing for you to forgive a matter or for you to let something sort of roll off your back. So I'm not saying confront every tiny little thing, but when there's wickedness that needs to be confronted, we need to do that to pull people from the snares of the devil. But it freaks people out. And they're like, oh, I didn't know we were like that. So they didn't join that tight-knit community because they were afraid, it says. The second thing is, not everyone is called to that tight-knit of a community, and not everybody is called to sell everything they have to follow Jesus. There's a story in the gospel where Jesus heals somebody, and he's like, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, I need you to stay here. <laughs> I need you to stay here and tell people what I did for you. Not everybody was called to sell everything they have to follow Jesus. Some people are. And some people are called to a super tight-knit 
community. Some people are called to the ministry, but not everybody is. Okay, so it's it's okay for these people to come to know the Lord and not necessarily join this tight-knit community. Did it, did it mean that them not joining this tight-knit community, were they somehow less Christian? No, of course not. Peter did not require people to join his community. Join my church. Join my community. You have to be my friend to know Jesus. No, he called them to be saved from the wrath of God. In his sermons that we've read so far and that we'll continue to, to read throughout Acts, his call is to repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. That is the call of Jesus. That is the call of Peter. That is his calling on these people's lives. Not join my community. It's not a cult. And be careful of that kind of language. Oh, you have to be part of our little thing to be saved. Now Peter's saying, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. And people did. People are. As we continue here in verse 15, it says, so, actually verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. Again, this is the, the porch of Solomon, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by them might fall on them. So Peter's getting to be known. He's a famous dude. He is healing a ton of people. And people are like, this dude is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Amazing. As Johnny spoke about last time, scripturally, and as he has experienced in his ministry, when healings take place, when the casting out of demons takes place, when a miracle happens, again, this is scriptural, it's always to point people towards salvation. This is not to glorify Peter. And, and you, if you look at his heart and if you look at how he reacts throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts, he doesn't say, yes, I am the great healer. Give me money and I will heal you. In fact, he rebukes people who try and give them money. We're going to see that soon. He doesn't do that. He always points to Jesus. He always says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He always points to God the Father. He always directs people not to himself, but to God. So when we see these healings, when we see these miracles, a lot of times we can be like, wow, Peter was so awesome. I want to be like Peter. No, you don't. You want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus. And if God has given you the gift to perform miracles, if God gives you an opportunity to pray for somebody and they are healed, be very careful. Because in Matthew chapter 7, there's people who are like, did we not cast out demons? Did we not heal people in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Strong language. And what he's talking about there in Matthew 7 is false teachers. If you read a little bit earlier, he's saying, beware of these false teachers. And a false teacher is somebody who uses the word of God, uses sometimes the gifts of God to direct attention and glory for themselves. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you want attention from people? Go get it. But that's all you're getting. That type of teacher, that type of preacher, that type of healer 
the closest to heaven he's going to get is the glory of man. Because he's going to hell. Strong language, I know, but it needs to be said. It needs to be confronted. So if you are ever in an opportunity where you pray for somebody and you're healed and they're like, wow, thank you so much. Say, no, 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 no. Don't thank me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus to direct them to be a child of God the Father. That's your focus. Use the gifts of God to direct them to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your gifts. <laughs> They're amazing as we read of the word of knowledge we see in Peter. We read of these healings, these miracles, the, the casting out of demons, these sick people who are being healed. But more than that, God, thank you for the salvation that came through those miracles. Thank you for creating that, those signs and wonders so that people would come and hear Peter preach about the salvation that Jesus brought, that reconciliation that Jesus gave to mankind. God, I thank you for Jesus. Not only am I thanking you for the gifts, but I thank you as, as the giver. We love you. And I, I pray that you will uh, continue to fill us with your spirit. Help us to uh, use the gifts that you've given each of us to bring glory to you and to bring people into your kingdom. Empower us today. Empower us this week and help us to glorify you in everything we do and in everything we say. In Jesus' name, amen.